need a drink of water right away. I've got to censor myself a little more when I'm going to preach in a little bit, not sing quite so much. Thanks, Ben. That was great. Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter Carlson. I'm, uh, I'm an overseer here at Hiawatha Church and uh, get the opportunity to, uh, to bring the gospel uh, a few times a year. Uh, I'm also the worship leader here, so you often probably see me standing over here holding a guitar. And I think this every time I come up to preach, it's weird to not hold that. And I feel like it would also be weird if I just held it and didn't use it while I was preaching. <laughs> it's just this, this thing. So, um, so welcome, whether you're a regular attender, a member, a visitor, uh, whoever you are, we're glad you're here with us this morning, that you came to worship with us and to hear the gospel and a special welcome to podcast listeners who are out there. There's a lot of them. So, yeah, yeah, see? It's fun when you hear that on the recording. So, someone, one of our missionaries actually in France uh, told me once, because I said that before a sermon, he's like, that was like direct, straight to me, straight to Trent. And I was like, yeah, see? You guys are out there. You, you matter. Um, so, we're in a sermon series right now in the book of Acts. We've been in it for a number of months. Uh, before Christmas, actually, we, we got to start on this series. And it's going to take us all the way, basically, to the end of the calendar year, this year, and it's been really great so far. Um, it's, it's fun to preach through narrative where there's just a lot of story that we can unpack and, and think about these characters who are real people walking around in the world doing these things uh, and what that, what that means, how it points us to Jesus, and what it means for us as well. So I figure we should start with a little bit of a recap of where we've been so far um, and where our characters are, what's going on uh, in the story. So we're right now talking about this guy named Paul and some of his companions who are on these church planting journeys that are taking them through the, uh, the ancient world, the first century world, uh, around the Mediterranean Sea. And right now they've made their way on this second church planting missionary journey up into this area of Macedonia. This is, this is like modern day Greece. And they're stopping at these towns along the way. They're preaching the gospel to the people there. People are believing. Some people are not believing. And then they kind of move to the next town and repeat the process. So that's what's been going on. So they've, uh, they've come through into Macedonia here. They've gone through Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia. Last week we, uh, we read about how they were in Thessalonica. Um, in Philippi, when they were here um, a few weeks ago, many believed, but they got arrested. Some people in town were really upset with what they were preaching, really upset with what they heard, um, and especially because Paul and his companions found this girl who was possessed by demons. And because of that, she had some, some powers to kind of foretell the future or, or tell people some things, almost like a fortune teller. And these guys had her as a slave and they were making money off of it. So Paul and his companions cast this demon out. The girl was relieved of this oppression. But then those guys were also relieved of their income. So they got them in trouble and got them put in prison. Um, and, uh, but God busted them out of prison in the middle of the night, if you remember this story. Um, and once they were out and, uh, and explained what had happened, the information also came out that they were Roman citizens, and it was a really bad thing to put them in, in prison if they were Roman citizens. So they, they got an apology and were kindly asked to leave the town, uh, which is interesting. So they mo- we went from Philippi through this area down to Thessalonica. Um, so the pattern repeated in Thessalonica. This is what we heard last week. They went into the Jewish synagogue. They, they preached the gospel to these Jewish people and to the people who had been converted to Judaism from this area in Greece. Many people believed, but a lot of people didn't believe, including some really angry people who basically hired some, some thugs, some goons from the town to make this big riot to basically try to drive them out of town. 
but they, they actually couldn't find them at that point. So like, I'm just imagining like this big, this big crowd, like, let's go get them. We don't know where they are. And so this like confusion happens. And so instead what they did is they, they grabbed the host family that was putting them up in Thessalonica and pulled them out and, uh, and said, yeah, not these guys, but the guys that they're helping are making a big, big to-do in our town and we, we want you to kick them out. And they're telling this to the, to the Roman authorities. And the authorities don't know what to do. So what they do is they, they extort money from this host family, Jason and his friends, and say, all right, um, we'll tell them to leave you alone if you pay us some money, um, but you really got to get these guys out of town because it's causing a problem. So they get some money from these guys and then they go back to find Paul and his, his companions and say, hey, we need to get you out of town because these guys are probably going to kill you um, if, they, if they do find you. So that's kind of the the quick cliff notes of what's been going on so far in the story as Paul and his companions are making their way through here. So now we're going to hear that they move from Thessalonica over to this next town called Berea. And what's going to happen there? It's about, it's about three days journey or maybe three nights if they're, if they're trying to be secretive about their, their movements. Um, but they're going to make it <clears throat> to the town of Berea. So that's where we're going to find ourselves today in the passage. So um, our passage today is Acts 17, verses 10 through 15. So we're going to read, read the whole passage to begin, and then we'll circle back um, and, uh, and unpack it, see the gospel here. So Acts 17, beginning in verse 10. So remember all that stuff that happened before. So here we are. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So you can see that this, this pattern is just repeating again in a new town, right? They, they come into the town, they go to the Jewish synagogue, they talk to the Jews, probably on the Sabbath as they have like guest speakers basically come. They go to the the synagogue and they they teach there. Some people believe, some people don't believe. Uh, Some people get really angry uh, and then they get kicked out of town. It's basically the same thing um, with with some slight differences. Um, Luke, who's the writer of this book, again, for like the second or third time, likes to point out that many many believed, Jews believed, but also Greeks believed and, and not a few Greek women of high standing. Oh, and also some of the men too. Um, I just think it's interesting. He likes, he likes to keep putting that in there so that we know that there are some well-to-do Greek women who are joining these churches. So this is the cycle. We've seen it before. We're seeing it again. But there is some variation to the cycle to be found here, something that's different. A few nuggets that he's throwing out here that he wants us to understand. Luke wants us to understand. God wants us to understand and to think about. And that's kind of specific, like Highland said, to these people in Berea, to these Bereans. What's different about them? What can we learn from their response to what Paul and his companions are saying? So I'm calling this sermon, too fast, the Berean model of belief. 
for Mac 17, okay? What is this, what is this model? And I'm going to just tell you right off the top. These are the three things that we see that it's a little bit different that Luke is calling us to in this passage. They listened eagerly to what was taught. Then they examined the scriptures to see what was going on, to see if it held up. And then they believed the truth. They believed, to what they, they believed what they found to be true based on what they were seeing in the scripture. So we're going to spend some time just examining this model, what it means for us, what it looks like. And how it's different than the Thessalonian model, if you, will, if you will, from what we heard before, where they listened to the message, then they got really angry, and then they kicked them out with, with violence, like they were probably going to kill them if they didn't get out of town. A little different than this model of listening, examining, and then, and then believing. Okay, so this is, this is the model. So we're just going to walk through this and look at each of these three things. So, so first of all, this listen eagerly part says, they received the word with all eagerness. Okay? They received the word with all eagerness. So they listened eagerly to what was being taught to them. So a new, a new preacher, a new pastor, comes to town and gets up in front of them and teaches, and they're excited. They're eager to hear. They've come to this synagogue or to these places where Paul is going, if it's not the synagogue. They come eager to listen. They want to hear what's going to be said. They don't come with like, all right, all right, I got dragged here. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, willing, I'm willing to hear a little bit, but I'm probably going to tune out. This is like eager to listen, okay? So right off the top, this is a really great applicable point for us uh, here, that when we come to church or when we open up our Bible, we should be eager at what's going to be coming to us. We should get excited about the experience that we're about to have hearing the Word of God preached to us. Just like you might come really eagerly to the table when you know there's going to be a delicious meal served. Like a Thanksgiving meal, for instance, right? When Thanksgiving comes around, a lot of times these meals take a long time to prepare, and you're, you're smelling all of this stuff throughout the house, and you're just like, man, I really am so excited to sit down with my family and have this big meal. You know what, though? This is, this is not a complete Thanksgiving meal. There. So we've got to add some lefsa in there. That's a really important... It's a really integral part of a Thanksgiving meal. I just cover up all the pies because I don't really care as much about that. But having lefsa there is, is, is extremely important, especially for me. So, so my family, the Carlson family, uh, lefsa is, is like a staple of the Thanksgiving meal experience. Um, my, my late grandmother was the best lefsa maker there's ever been, I'm convinced. You cannot convince me otherwise. She was amazing. She would make huge huge batches of lefsa for these meals that we would have for Christmas or Thanksgiving. Um, and she had to because I'm, I, uh, I have 18 cousins on the Carlson side, and when most of us would get together for these meals, um, the lefsa would come out, and it was like Lord of the Flies, and I'm not even joking. So there would be like a kid's table and a grown-up's table, and they would like, they'd put the lefsa plate out on the kid's table, and it would like be elbows and shoving, and then they would migrate to the adult's table and like walk around it. Is there any lefts on this table? Where is it? And she would keep some back in the kitchen, you guys. She would keep like a secret stash of lefts. So like when the violence died down, this other plate would come out to the adults' table and they could have some. This is the only way it was going to work. And so there was this common refrain like all, all weekend or the whole time we were there, like, is there any more lefsa? Where is it? We're checking the freezer. We're checking all the places. Um, because we were so eager <laughs> to have grandma's lefsa that we just needed it. Um, and we were so excited that it, was, that it was part of the meal. The same thing for us as Christians for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be so eager to have it. 
We should be so eager. This is our spiritual sustenance. It's our feast. This is what we long for, okay? This, this eagerness that we have to hear the gospel preached. Is there any more? Can we have seconds of the gospel? Can we have thirds of the gospel? That's how we should be thinking. Jesus, to, to continue with this amazing lapso metaphor that I'm spinning here, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. John chapter 6, he's talking to his followers after he's just fed 5,000 people with, with bread that he just kind of conjured up. And they, they're still following him. And one of the things that he says is, is um, there is bread of life that when you eat it, you'll never be hungry again. And they say, give us this bread always. That sounds amazing. I would love to have bread that when I eat it, I don't have to worry about being hungry anymore. And you think many of these people were probably poor and had a hard time finding food most of the time. Just thought, how amazing would that be if I just didn't have to worry about where I'm going to get my next meal? If, if he has bread that's, that satisfies my hunger forever, I want it now. Eagerly, eagerly want this bread. And it's at that point that he says, well, I am the bread of life. You need to eat my body. You need to drink my blood. That is how you will live forever. And then a lot of people are like, mm, not what I thought. <laughs> and I think I'm going to leave because that's weird. And I have this other quote in here because Jesus sees a lot of people leave and he turns to his disciples and says, do you, do you want to leave? Is that too hard for you to understand? that I am this bread of life, that I am the one who's going to sustain you. And Peter's the one, actually, who says, well, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else. You see how eager he is to be with Jesus and to hear him speak. He says, where else am I going to get this? Nowhere. In another part of the book of John, Jesus talks about living water in the same type of way, where he's talking to this woman who's drawing water from a well, and he says, hey, I could give you some, some living water, and when you drink that water, you'll never be thirsty again. And her response is, sir, give me this water. You don't understand how hard it is for me every day to walk all the way outside of town in the heat of the day with this big jar, fill it with water, go back, repeat again tomorrow, maybe do it twice a day. It's so stressful and hard, but are you telling me that there's water that I can drink and I never experience thirst again? Give it to me right now. I am so eager to have that. The gospel of Jesus, Jesus himself gives us these words of eternal life, gives us himself as sustenance, as a feast. It's what sustains us. It's life-giving to our spirits. We should be eager for that sort of thing, right? We should be very eager to hear that, to have that preached to us. That excitement of the word of God just hitting our physical eardrums should excite us. Reading the Bible, it should excite us. Coming to church like we're doing today to worship and hear, should excite us. Should be eager to have that in our lives. This is how it was with the Bereans. When he comes and preaches the gospel, they're like, I want this so much. I want you to keep on telling me this. I want to think about it and study it all throughout the week. This eagerness. So before we talk about examining the scriptures, let's take just a second to look at what, what was it that Paul was saying to them? What was the message that they were hearing that made them so eager? What was it? We're going to go back a little bit to the beginning of this chapter to a passage that Pastor Spencer brought us last week because it doesn't go into detail here about what the message was, but Paul and his, his commanders are preaching the same thing at each of these towns. So in Thessalonica, here's, here's what the teaching was, okay? It says this, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving 
that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So this is the message that they're hearing, okay? This is the, the good news that they're eagerly hearing Paul say. Now, you got to remember who the audience is here. So he goes to the synagogue and preaches mostly to the Jews and to some of these people who have converted to Judaism. They have the Old Testament, and one of the huge tenets of their faith is this idea of the Christ or the Messiah, if you've heard the word Messiah before. And the standard interpretation that they had in their belief system for this, this idea of the Messiah from the Old Testament was something like this, okay? Standard Jewish teaching. The Messiah is going to come someday. Who is he? Well, he's going to be a mighty king of Israel. And why is he going to come? He's going to defeat the enemies of Israel and set up this everlasting, amazing Israeli kingdom. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for like this, this amazing redemption of the socio-political state of Israel through this mighty, almost supernatural king figure called the Messiah. Okay? That's the standard teaching that they hear. So when Paul rolls in and he brings this teaching, well, the Messiah had to suffer and die for our sins. And the Messiah had to rise from the dead. And all of this already happened. It's, he's already come. It's Jesus. He did all of this stuff. It's, it's, it's done. That's his message. So you can see where the friction would come for those, those people like in Thessalonica and other cities where they're like, I reject that. That is not what I have been taught all my life. That doesn't sound right. The Messiah is not someone who's going to come and be killed by the Romans. The Messiah is the one who's going to come and kill the Romans. This doesn't make sense to me. They would have a lot of questions about this kind of teaching, right? Okay, where's the Messiah? Isn't he supposed to be here? Why is Rome still in power? I thought that was part of the whole deal. Crush the Romans, raise up the Israeli socio-political state. Oh, why are we still scattered? We're Jews living in Greece and we would rather live in Israel, but we've been scattered because of all these conquerings that have happened over the centuries for our people. Isn't that going to be undone? Etc., 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 etc. This is the stuff that they would have on their hearts and minds as Paul is teaching. But that's why it's so key that it says Paul opens up the Old Testament and explains to them and proves to them, look, your picture of the Messiah is flawed. This is what the Messiah has always supposed to, was always supposed to be. He came on a mission that always had to include suffering and death and resurrection. That was why he came. Because, and this is key, the real enemy of God's people isn't Rome, it's not Babylon, it's not Assyria, it's not Egypt, it's not Russia or Iran or fascism or any of that kind of stuff. The real enemy of God's people is not even an earthly nation. It's sin. It's their own sin which is inside of them. And it's the death that comes from sin. That's the real enemy. So Paul's explaining this and saying, now you see, doesn't it make sense that the Messiah had to suffer and die and rise from the dead to defeat the enemies of his people? So he has this message. He shows them the Old Testament. He says, this is the Messiah. It's Jesus. The work has already been completed. But the Bereans are careful. They're careful about what they believe. But they're also careful about what they reject. They hear this eagerly, 
And then they get their investigative hats on. They get their Enneagram 5 kind of stuff going on and say, okay, I'm not going to make a snap judgment here. I really like what you're hearing. I was eager to hear it. Now is going to be the phase where I examine the Scriptures to see if this is true. So they examine the Scriptures for themselves, and it says daily. So remember, Paul's coming to the synagogue on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, and preaching. And then they have Sunday through Friday to go about their normal lives. And it says that they spend those days examining the Scriptures even more. They take these things that Paul showed them, and they dig even deeper. And all they have is the Old Testament. And they often refer to this as the Law and the Prophets. So like the books uh, at the beginning, Moses' books, and then the Prophets at the end. This whole of the Old Testament, that's, that's what they have. And they dig in deeply every day to examine this and try to understand whether or not it's true. And the reason that they go to the Scriptures is because they believed, just like we do at Hiawatha Church corporately, we believe that the Bible is the source of truth. Where else are we going to go to see if this is true or not? This is God's Word. We know this is God's Word, they say. So this is where we go. At Hiawatha Church, we have a statement of faith that talks through all these different things that we believe. And it's on our website if you want to see all of it. And I'd encourage you to, to read it if you haven't. But point number one on our statement of faith is this. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God, fully inspired and without error in the original manuscripts, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that it has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. The Bereans believe this too. The Bible has supreme authority. So when they hear a teaching like this, they don't say, let's talk about how this makes us feel. Let's talk about whether this fits with what I want to be true about the world around me. They say, let's read the Bible. Let's see what the supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct says about this new teaching that we're hearing from this new guy that we don't really know, but we really like what he's saying. Let's see if it's true by going to the Bible. Okay? So, what do they find? What do they find when they go to the Old Testament and start poking around? What do they find when they dig deeper into the things that Paul was telling them? We don't know, because it doesn't tell us what their Bible study guide looked like. But here are a few things that they might have found as they looked in the Old Testament. Just a few. There's a lot more that I didn't put on this slide. Okay? They looked in the Scripture and they said, what do we find about the Messiah? Well, Micah 5.2 says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's true. That was written 800 years before Jesus was born. Okay, cool. Way back, 2 Samuel 7, it says that there would be a descendant of David who would rise up and be a king over a kingdom forever. So the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David, King David. Jesus was a descendant of King David. Hosea 11.1 1 says that the Messiah would be called up out of Egypt. The Son of God would be called up out of Egypt. Jesus was called up out of Egypt. When he was an infant, the king Herod at the time heard that some other new king might have been born in the area of Bethlehem, and he sent soldiers there to kill all the boys under two years of age just to be sure that whoever this threat to his throne was would be killed. And Jesus' parents took him and fled to Egypt to hide because an angel told them to. 
So Jesus was called back up out of Egypt, back to his, his hometown. Zechariah 9.9 says that the Messiah would, would come riding a donkey. That's 500 years before Jesus was born. Jesus rode a donkey into the town of Jerusalem, to the city of Jerusalem, uh, just a week before he was crucified. He rode a donkey. Genesis 22 talks about this idea of a willing sacrifice like Isaac, that there would be a more full sacrifice that was willing. Jesus was a willing sacrifice on the cross. He did not fight it. Exodus 12 talks about this idea of the Passover, where God instructs his people, look, an angel of death is going to come. Everyone will be wiped out unless you slaughter a lamb as a sacrifice and put the blood over your door, then you will be saved. This idea of being saved, this Messiah idea. Jesus died on the Passover. Numbers 21 is this story of Moses lifting up a snake on a staff and says, everyone who's been bitten by a snake, look at this snake that's being held up and you will be saved. And later, Jesus talks about this and says, the Son of Man must be lifted up, just like Moses lifted this snake in the desert so that people may live. Jesus was lifted up. And Isaiah 53, we read this this morning. Leah read this to, to begin our time of worship. Talks about this idea that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. Not this like conquering military hero, but a suffering servant who defeats his enemies through his death. There's, and there's dozens more. Just Google it. There's dozens more. The Bereans look in the scriptures, they see these things, they see more things. And the more they read, the more they understand, the more they talk to Paul and Silas and Timothy, they understand that Jesus is the Messiah from their Old Testament that they know to be true. That's the teaching. This brand new teaching is the truth. It's, it's brand new to them, but they're understanding that it's true. But is it really brand new? If we have all of this in the Old Testament, this isn't new teaching to them. This is, this is 500 plus year old teaching that they just didn't quite have the full handle on. And Paul says as much himself. Later on in the book of Acts, Paul is before some authorities again because he's in trouble for preaching. And they start asking him some questions. And he starts saying, look, what I'm saying, it's not actually new. He says in Acts 26, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. It's not new. And in his book to the Thessalonians, he says this, this little pithy proverb, he says, don't despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good, because he's saying the prophecies talked about what I'm talking about. This isn't brand new stuff, you guys. Understand it. Find it to be true. Jesus talks about prophecies, too, and how they point to him. Matthew 5, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This, this still matters, he says. This points to me, and it still matters. And in John 5, he's talking to some stubborn people who just don't believe, but they believe the Old Testament. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's saying, look at the scriptures. They're talking about me. The Bible is this unified whole. When you take the big picture, it all points to Jesus. 
And the Bereans are finding this in their daily examination of the Scriptures. They're like, this, this is coming together. This is making sense to me. So what do they do after their examination of the Scriptures? What comes next? Many of them therefore believed. Through their examination of the Scriptures, through their conversations with their, each other, with their teachers throughout the week, continuing to hear, continuing to read, they believe. Many of them therefore believed. And a brand new church is born in Berea. And it's full of Jews, it's full of Greeks, it's full of women, it's full of men. It's this beautiful picture of what the church looks like. Diverse, unified, all together, eagerly listening to the scriptures, eagerly hearing teaching, talking about it throughout the week, and believing that Jesus is the Christ who is to come. 2 Timothy says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. This was profitable to them. They heard the gospel, they read the Scriptures, and it profited them by helping them to believe, to understand. It was profitable to them. The scripture was breathed out by God over hundreds of years. It came to these people in this town in Greece, and it was profitable to them. And it says here that it's not, not just profitable for teaching, but for reproof. So this model, this Berean model of listen to it, examine the scriptures, and then believe the, the stuff that's true, is also useful for reproof, for filtering out bad theology that also might come our way, Right? There's always been bad theology out there. But I think you'll agree that in this cultural moment when we have access to all kinds of information very easily from libraries to the internet to whatever, it has afforded us access to things that just aren't true. So it feels like there might be more bad theology and bad teaching coming at us than ever before. It's probably just due to the fact that we have access to more things. But there's always been poor theology, things that are not true, being thrown at believers. That's why it's so important to run teachings through this Bible filter to ask ourselves these questions. Does what I'm hearing actually align with what I know is true, which is the Scriptures? Does this teaching point to Christ? Or is it pointing me to someone or something else? We need to have that kind of a filter to reject the lies, not just believe the truth, but also to reject things that we find are lies. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, abbreviated here, God gave us scripture and shepherds and teachers, etc., so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. He says God gave us these things. He gave us the Bible. He gave us our pastors and our teachers so that we won't have to be tricked by these things that come our way. We can reject those things. We don't get tossed around. We have a firm rock of the scriptures to stand on, so that doesn't happen. And there's this really great passage in 2 Peter where uh, Peter's writing about the same kind of thing. Um, So check this out. He says, And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them, of these matters. And then he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. 
I love that. Peter's like, I've read Paul's letters. They're great. I, I know that some people don't understand them. I get it. Um, but I know that some of these things that are in them are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter says people take scripture and they try to twist it. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now unto the day of eternity. Amen. So Peter is saying, hey, you're going to hear stuff that's not true. People are even going to try to use the scripture and twist it and pluck verses out of context and rearrange them and say they don't mean what it seems like they mean. But you should know this ahead of time because I'm warning you now. Don't lose your stability. Instead, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Test the teaching of what you're hearing against the Bible. Grow in that knowledge. So you might be saying to yourself at this point, okay, okay, so what I'm hearing is, if I do this big Bible study with all those references, with all my non-believing friends, um, just run this kind of Berean playbook with them that Paul ran with the Bereans, then they're just going to believe, right? Because there's no way that they can misunderstand this and, and say, I don't, I don't get it. Like if I just show them what, 500 years before and then he's born, it's the same town. There you go, Right? Are, are we good? You got it? We believe, right? Um, well, it's not actually true. And med- many of you have probably learned this from experience, that you can have the most rational, apologetic conversation with someone, and they're like, nah, I don't, get, I don't see it. Or they might just say, yeah, but I don't believe this is true. So it's, that's not going to help. Sorry. I mean, look at the mob in Thessalonica just one more time, right? They had the scriptures, they could easily have gone to the Old Testament and be like, you know, Isaiah 53, it checks out. Oh, yeah, the Bethlehem stuff, that checks out. Yeah, the donkey, I, that would be really hard to pull off. They heard the same message. They responded with rejection and violence. Oh, also, they traveled three days to the next town to kick his butt again. They were serious about this. They're like, no, 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 no. Some believe, some don't. They hear the same message. And what that points us to is this fact. We don't save people. Jesus saves people. As Christians, we often find ourselves placing the burden of saving people on ourselves. But only the Holy Spirit can change people's hearts. It's exciting and necessary for us to share our faith with other people But if they do not believe, that doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. It means that the Spirit is working on them through you, and the Spirit's doing the work, not you. Jesus is the one who saves people. I don't have it on screen, but Paul talks in 1 Corinthians where he's he's saying, hey, I know some of you uh, got saved by hearing this guy named Apollo speak, and some of you got saved by hearing me speak, and you're kind of like fighting amongst each other about who's the better speaker. And he's like, let me just clear this up right now. Uh, None of us are anything. Oh, I can plant the seed, and Apollos can water the seed. Who makes the seed grow? That's God. See, the people who are planting these seeds aren't, aren't doing the work of saving people. They're doing the work of spreading the gospel, putting the God's word, putting God's word into people's ears, but the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to save those people's souls. So don't be misguided in that. Only the Spirit can do that. Only the Spirit can do that kind of work 
in people's hearts. So use the Scriptures and pray that God, through His Spirit, would open the hearts of people to believe, but know that Jesus, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, is the one who saves people. Maybe you've heard a story like this, or this specific story, about a World War II Japanese soldier. This guy right here, his name was Hiru Onada. He was a soldier for Japan in World War II, found himself stationed on uh, a remote island in the Philippines during the war, um, fought for his side, had soldiers with him, and when the war was over, the news that Japan had surrendered came through, and he said, not true, I don't buy it. There's no way we surrendered. There's no way this war is over. He would not believe it. When the, when the local Philippine people went out to tell him, like, hey, you can stop. You can come out now. The war, the war is over. Um, he tried to fight them. He shot at them. He ran and hid. Um, he continued his own war effort. They, didn't, they couldn't get through to him. His fellow Japanese soldiers who were on the island were like, hey, we're, we're done. We're, we're headed home. And he said, no way. I don't buy it. They, they dropped leaflets over the area where he was that said, hey, the war is over. We know who you are. You should come out. It's all over. No. They put up loudspeakers outside the jungle, and they, they got people to speak his language into these loudspeakers and explain what's going on. No, nothing. They brought his brother from Japan to this island to get on the loudspeaker. and like, Hiro, no, seriously, the war is done. You, you need to come out. No. Not buying it. There's peace everywhere around him, and he's still at war. And you know why? Because he believed those were traps set by his enemies. If I come out there, they're going to kill me. That's what they do. I am not buying it. I know what's true. That's that the war is still going on. So finally, the Japanese government convinced his old commanding officer to travel from Japan to this island, to go out there, to talk to Onada and say, hey, I'm your commanding officer, I'm ordering you to stop. The war is over, we surrendered, come out. That was 1974. That was 30 years after World War II ended that they brought his commanding officer, this guy in this business suit because he's out of the army now, he's working a job, to come down and talk to Hero and say, it's me, you trust me? The war is over. I wouldn't lie to you. This is real. Come out. So he walked out of the jungle. He had survived in there for 30 years. We're stubborn people. <laughs> when someone tells us something that we don't want to believe, we don't. And we're fine with that. No matter what. For Hero, it was someone telling him that the war is over and that he can stop his mission. And he said, no way. I have poured too much into this. I do not believe you. When someone tells us that we're sick with sin, that we're terminally ill, that we're even stillborn and spiritually dead, we do not like the sound of that. When someone tells us that all this performance, all these good deeds, don't actually help our standing with God at all, that they don't give us spiritual life, oh, we hate that teaching. We hate that. What do you mean all the stuff that I'm, the good things that I've done? Because I've done a lot of good things. Are you telling me that they don't matter? That I'm not earning any favor with God? That I'm still sinful even though? And we'll say things like, yeah, I, I'm good with some of the Bible, but not all of it, right? I mean, not all of it. 
I don't get the Old Testament. I think we should uncouple the Old Testament from the New Testament. I think we should all just focus on Jesus, focus on the New Testament. The Old Testament has a lot of stuff that I don't get or I don't like or that feels weird. Oh, and I don't like the idea of hell either. So let's make sure we leave that out because that's pretty nasty. Oh, and telling people that they're born into sin is mean and hurtful. Makes them feel bad. Oh, and the cross is just ugly and violent. I don't like the idea of the Son of God, like, getting tortured to death. What, what's the... We want the Bible to work for us, right? We want the Bible to work for us. We want it to support the opinions that we have already. Which, I mean, if we're being honest, that's probably what we want in all areas of our life. For them to tell us, yeah, you were right, and you've been right all along, and just keep doing what you're doing. That's what we like. We like that kind of message. Oh, by the way, Paul, the guy who was preaching this, he believed all of that stuff before. He rejected the gospel when he heard it so violently that he was killing people, putting people in prison, stoning people. He was traveling town to town chasing these people like the Thessalonians are chasing him now. He was dismissing the prophecies of Scripture. He basically had the Old Testament memorized. He knew all this stuff. He said, no, that makes no sense. I'm waiting for the super king who's going to make us the, the biggest power in the world. He was working hard to save himself with his good deeds, with his religious morality, whatever it is. He's working hard. And only when Christ comes to him, when he's walking from one town to the next to get more people, Christ walks in and says, hey, 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 stop, stop. This is the truth. It's me. I'm here to speak to you. Just like the Spirit speaks to us in our hearts. Jesus says, I'm Jesus. I was crucified for your sin. I took the fatal blow in the war that you think you're still fighting. It's over now. I'm victorious. You can surrender your life to me. You can believe me. We need Jesus to do that for us. We need Jesus to save us. We need Jesus to come to our hearts and say, it's me. I am the Messiah. I am the one who is to come. This is what it looks like for me to pay the penalty for your sin. And there's good news because he's already, he's come and done that. On the cross, he's done that for us. He has revealed himself to us through his word and said, look, this is true. You can surrender your life. You do not need to keep fighting. You do not need to keep working for your salvation. I have done the work for you, and it is finished, he says. And that is the truth. So as we conclude, think about these things from the Berean church. What does it mean to listen eagerly? How does that look for you? To have the gospel be like your feast, that you're so excited, that you're asking for seconds and thirds. I want more. I want to hear the gospel more. I'm not sick of it. I want it more. Because it's what my sustenance is. It's what fills me. It's the bread that when I eat it, I'm never hungry again. And then examining the scriptures. Believe that the Bible is true. Believe that scripture speaks to us because it does. This is God's word. This is God's voice. So when you hear teaching, when you read a new book, when you see a new post, when you hear something on the radio, have your Bible next to you. Like, Ah, that's interesting. Let me, let me do a little checking on that. Do that. Do that. The Bible speaks to you. It's the voice of God. If you want to hear, verbally hear the voice of God in your ears, 
Read this out loud to yourself and you will because this is God's word. And after that, believe the truth. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he has come to save his people, that we do not save ourselves. We do not save other people. Jesus saves people. Point to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. There's a great quote from Tim Keller here where he talks about the Bible and its importance. And he says, For years I thought God could be active in my life through the Spirit, and the Bible was a book that I had to obey if God was going to come in. He says, I now realize that the Bible is the way that through the Spirit, God is active in my life. The Bible is not just some book that you have to obey. The Bible is the Word of God active in your life life. We've been given an amazing gift with this right here. God's own voice, his own words, the good news of his gospel. I mean, the God who created the universe wrote you a letter to tell you how much he loves you. And you can, you can read it anytime you want. You, you, there's like copies of it strewn about this room. It's on your phone. How crazy is that? How blessed are we to have that gift? Don't take it for granted. Cherish the voice of God in your life. From preachers and teachers to the Bible itself, cherish it. Be eager for it. Want more of it. And take joy in it because we really truly do have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And he wants us to know because he's telling us that. So be excited, be eager, be joyful for the word of God in your life. As we close the service, let's pray.